Welcome to the first episode of The Quantified Body. I'm Damien Blinkensop, your host, and I just got to say I'm really excited about this. I've been working on this project for a few months now, and I've already done a ton of interviews with great guests about all sorts of subjects which are really important to health, performance, longevity, all the kind of results we want in life, and using data and better decisions to get there quicker. So I'm really excited about this. Today, the topic we're going to look at is very practical. It's something for any of those of you out there who go to the gym, work out, training, and the topic is heart rate variability, also known as HRV. So the deal is that whether you're a professional athlete or you're just going to the gym you know, to work out and feel good, the fact is that recovery is a huge part of the results we get in the gym today especially in this chronically stressed world where we're all like not sleeping in enough we're not necessarily got the best diets we're working too much we've got many stresses and life is just too fast in general we're trying to squeeze too much in so recovery is a, is a pretty important part of getting the most out of our time in the gym making sure that we're not digging a bigger hole for us you know, reducing our performance, reducing our well-being rather than improving it. And a lot of people are aware of this now. However, even if you know this, and I know this for myself, when I've been training, it like I always felt like training more than was actually necessary. Um, and so you still knock against this like, I don't know if I'm recovered enough to work out today. And I, you know, I feel like I should, so I do. And then, you know, you don't increase your strength, you don't get better results. And so it can be difficult to figure out like if it's the right time to hit the gym hard again and you're fully recovered. Enter heart rate variability. This is a really useful metric and there's been a lot of research done on it about how you can use it to predict your stage of recovery and if you still need to recover before adding more stresses to your life. So a lot of professional athletes are using this now and uh, a lot of devices and apps have just started coming out over the last couple of years so that it's very easy to get access to this stuff and to use it. It's pretty cheap. It's pretty convenient. But there's lots of questions about how to use it, how accurate it is, like which devices, which apps should you be using, you know, what fits, what's proven by the research, what isn't, how, should, how can you actually use it to predict whether it's a good time to work out today or not. So, you know, there's lots of questions around this and I, I had tons of questions when I started and so that's why I was looking for someone who really understood this area to interview. And I'm glad to say that I found someone uh, via his blog, which is hrvtraining.com, which was the best resource I found on the topic, which goes the deepest. His name is Andrew Flat, and he's a PhD student. He's been working in the Human Performance Lab at Auburn University on research related to HRV and exercise. He has been making use of HRV since 2011 himself to monitor and optimize his own training and that of the athletes he coaches. Some of those are professional athletes. He's also an accomplished athlete himself, so he knows all about this. He won the 2010 Canadian National Raw Powerlifting Championships. Andrew is extremely hands-on and has done a lot of the groundwork and, you know, is pretty much submerged in his day-to-day. So it's really great to have both a practical and research-based perspective that he's going to bring to us today. To get the show notes, the transcript of the interview, and a whole bunch of other stuff about this episode, you can go to theQuantifiedBody.net forward slash episode one. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. 
In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure's mine, Damien. Thanks for having me. Thanks. What I thought we'd do to start with is jump into what is HRV uh, a little bit, heart rate variability, so that you know people who haven't come across this before can have a rough understanding of what it is and how it works. Heart rate variability often gets confused with basic heart rate, which is measured in beats per minute. Heart rate variability differs by measuring the actual time difference between heartbeats. So from an electrocardiogram, you know, we get R to R intervals. And from breathing patterns, uh, there's variance between sets of R to R intervals. And what heart rate variability is doing is capturing those changes between those heartbeats. So it's a, a little bit more specific of a measurement, but it's not too dissimilar from basic heart rate. So people shouldn't get too confused with it. So could you give me a, a quick overview? What is heart rate variability, HRV, and you know how do, how do you use it? What is it all about? Your resting heart rate um, is actually not, generally not consistent. You know, we, we learn in a textbook that the heart beats every approximately 0.8 seconds for an average of 75 beats per minute. What that doesn't factor in is the actual changes in heart rate, subtle changes that uh, in response to respiration, where when you breathe in, your heart rate actually speeds up a little bit. When you breathe out, your heart rate will slow down. And that's normal. That's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And uh, essentially what heart rate variability is capturing is, is those subtle changes in heart rate in response to respiration. So heart rate in beats per minute is kind of giving you that average of how many beats there were, whereas the variability is telling you how much variation there was between the beats. Now, there's various statistical procedures and, and so forth that we can uh, assess variability. There's the standard deviation, there's the root mean square, there's, there's spectral analyses. So there's, there's various parameters for heart rate variability, but in a nutshell, it's just measuring the, the variance and changes between the time interval between heartbeats. Right, right. And you brought up a little bit of terminology there. It's R to R intervals, which is basically R means the, the top of the beat, right? The kind of spike of the beat um, that you kind of see on the electrocardiogram. So R to R just means in between the time in between beats, correct? Right. Because because they're such high peaks, it's real easy to measure the interval between them. So that's generally why the R to R intervals are, have been right. chosen. So. Right. And what, just out of interest, why is it called an R? Why is it called like, you know, a beat or... <laughs> The, the peaks are just alphabetically named. There's the P, Q, R, S complex, the T wave. So okay, okay. just And the peak just happens to be the R. Good. So I, I know that you've been using HRV in uh, a bunch of areas to basically make better decisions, uh, mostly about training. Could you talk a bit about the different scenarios you've been looking at it with and where you found it most useful? Well, I think it just it, it comes down to why I started measuring heart rate variability. Hmm. I first learned about it just reading on some strength and conditioning forums, a website called EliteFPS.com. And there's some strength coaches talking about how they're using it with their athletes. So I kind of gained interest in it then. But it wasn't until I was I was preparing for a powerlifting competition. Training was going really well. I was pushing it real hard. I was set to set some personal records at a lighter body weight. When all of a sudden I, I took a planned deload, I actually got a little bit of a cold. I took a few days off from it. Went back to hit the weights and, and things were just feeling real heavy. And, and and it was too close to competition for me to really fix things. And I actually ended up pulling out of the meet and I was really disappointed. And, you know, I thought to myself, there's got to be some kind of way that I could better manage my training and, and maybe 
kind of prevent this or see it coming a little bit better. So that was kind of the motivation to, to actually purchase a heart rate variability device and start using it. So my original motivation was was to guide my own training. You know, I'm I, I was I'm involved in powerlifting, so so my it was kind of a selfish motivation more so than working with athletes. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, that's kind of where it came to, where I would actually start using it with athletes. I was training friends and colleagues. I would get them using it and, and look at their data, and, and you know, and that's kind of how things went from there. So you so you obviously found it very useful, you know, to to have gone into and start using this with other people now. So. What kind of decisions do you make based on this? And is this the only indicator you like? Is it the main indicator you use with your training program and like deciding when when to, you know, change up the variables? You know, when I when I first started using the device, I was very skeptical at first. I, I didn't know much about it other than what I read on the forums. And what I actually did was for for six months I used it and collected data, but I did not use it for any kind of decision making. In fact, I really didn't look at the trends or analyze anything till after about six months. When I would kind of look at the trend, I would look at my training log and I would try to see, you know, if it, what it was telling me in the first place. You know, I think one of the biggest mistakes is people get a device, they think they know how to use it, and then they want to start making decisions with it. I think you almost want to do some kind of cross-validation with it on yourself first, you know, and see see what it's telling you in response to training or in response to, you know, different kind of life events. You get sick, you know, you travel. What is it showing you? Is it meaningful? And can that drive better decision-making? And essentially what I found was after six months of using it, I would look back on it and, uh, you know, after heavy training sessions, I would see a decrease in my HRV score. Most noticeably, I would see after any kind of a new training stimulus. So, you know, being involved in powerlifting, I wasn't doing a whole lot of conditioning work. But uh, at the time I was, I was doing my master's. I was uh, working with a whole bunch of other people in the weight room. I was a grad assistant strength coach and they love to do conditioning on Wednesdays. So Wednesday morning, we would go and run these stairs. And man, it was tough for me, you know, being a powerlifter, not running for since, you know, I played football years before. And my HRV scores would just absolutely plummet after these sessions. But, you know, after a few weeks, I would notice smaller and smaller, you know, fluctuations in my scores. And it was kind of, you know, reflecting that that progressive adaptation to that training stimulus. So I thought that was kind of cool. Right. So um, what, what kind of impacts do you say? So like once your score has plummeted, like what, what does that mean the next day? You know, like it's to say, like you know, you you start the day and you track your HRV and your scores yep. plummeted. What does that mean, like in terms of like how you're going to be feeling, and what does that mean in terms of the how it's going to change the decisions you make that day? So a low score can can definitely be the result of a heavy training session. Um, unfortunately, it's not that simple. You know, one of the great things about HRV is also one of its downfalls is that you know it, it's a global marker you know, of stressors, whatever, whether that's physical, mental, you know, chemical. So, so not always will you see a low score because of training. It could be brought on by other things. So you really need to be tracking other variables to really, you know, make it a meaningful interpretation of what the data is telling you. Right. So in the context of your training program, if nothing else changes, you right. know, so, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like that, then it, it should be down to your training. So I think one of the, one of the main things is that you have to, you know, are you an aerobic athlete? Are you an anaerobic athlete? Are you a, a team sport athlete? Depends on your training. Uh, because what heart rate variability is, is it's uh, a reflection of the cardiovascular autonomic nervous system. Mm. And so it, it's, you know, for the most part, and especially within the research, it's predominantly been used with aerobic athletes. And, and that's kind of who would most benefit from it. I mean, resistance trained athletes, at this point, it's all, you know, experimental to see what it is actually showing. 
but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily reflect um, muscle soreness. It doesn't necessarily reflect muscle damage or uh, you know your neuromuscular abilities for that day, your CNS you know kind of potential. It, it's a reflection of the cardiovascular autonomic nervous system, which is still a very important piece you know physiologically for for being prepared for training. So it, it is only one. Uh, marker to consider, but I mean the cardiovascular system is is extremely important with uh, you know the recovery process uh, with removing waste products and and so forth. So when the when the autonomic cardiovascular autonomic nervous system is is kind of has rebounded back to baseline levels or super compensated to above, you know that would indicate that that system is ready to go and is more likely to be in a more adaptive state to any kind of physical stress. Right. Right. So you've, you've mentioned that it's the autonomic nervous system. Another thing that we often hear is that it's an indicator of vagal tone. What does that mean? So the autonomic nervous system, you know, simply put, is divided into two branches. You have your sympathetic branch and your parasympathetic branch. Uh, the term vagal, you know, uh, is re referring to the, the vagus nerve, okay, which is essentially the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, where that you have parasympathetic innervation in the heart that essentially, you know, any kind of physiology class, your professor will probably give you the car analogy where, you know, when your foot is on the brake, the car is not moving, that's your, your rest and digest response. And, uh, you know, the autonomic nervous system is taking care of, of all the things that we don't consciously control. So our blood pressure, digestion, um, endocrine gland secretion, and so forth. And, and then when you take that foot off the brake, uh, you know, you have that withdrawal of parasympathetic or, or vagal activity. And then when you hit the accelerator, all of a sudden you get that, that sympathetic output. And that's going to actually increase heart rate and, you know, prepare you for any kind of stressful events, you know, whether it's exercise or, you know, simple postural change from, from laying down to standing up. You know, you got to pump blood to the brain so you don't pass out. And, and that's a sympathetic response. Right, right. So... And another way I've heard it described is that basically your parasympathetic is trying to balance your system. So that the vagal tone is the ability for you to balance and respond to stressors around you. Is that another way you look at it or is that not correct? Yeah. So, so essentially the, the sympathetic nervous system will be quite active during, you know, physical stress like exercise. And then to recover from that, that's when your parasympathetic nervous system will help rebuild structures and repair the damage essentially that occurs during those stressful events. So that's why measuring your parasympathetic activity on a day-to-day -day basis is, you know, a reasonably good indicator of, of your recovery status. If, if your body is still stressed from training and you have a higher sympathetic output or, or even just parasympathetic withdrawal, you know that your system may not be fully recovered. Now, what I want to be clear is that it's, it, it, that doesn't mean that you can't train, you know, if your HRV is a little bit low. And, and a lot of these apps, what that I think people need to understand is only measuring parasympathetic activity through through a, a time domain measure called RMSSD. So that, that does not give you any indication of sympathetic activity. It's, it's purely uh, vaguely mediated, so parasympathetic. Okay, okay. There's a couple of other terms you hear quite a lot is LF, low, fre low frequency, and HF, high frequency. As I understand it, like often they say LF is a sympathetic the stressor and HF is the parasympathetic relaxation. Is, is that true or is it a bit more complex? And our, because some, some of the apps track, you know, the LF and the HF as well, but some of them don't. You're, the, what you're talking about is uh, they're called spectral measures from, from frequency domain analysis. Uh, HF generally does uh, indicate parasympathetic activity. LF, uh, 
actually would be indicative of both parasympathetic and sympathetic activity. So it's not uh, it's not as clear as we'd like it to be, you know, where, uh, you know, HF is parasympathetic, LF is sympathetic, and, you know, it gives you an indication of uh, sympathovagal balance, they'll call it. Um, it. It isn't that clear. And one of the issues with the spectral measures that you're referring to is uh, in terms of their practicality in, in field settings, you know, they require longer measurement durations for, you know, for valid assessment. These are less reliable markers on a day-to-day -day basis. It's kind of been recommended that RMSSD is the preferred parameter for, especially for convenience and, and for non-expert users in the field that just need a simple uh, number that they could read and interpret real easily. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, the RMSSD values is preferred for that. Right. It's, so is RMSSD the one that has the most research behind it? Well, RMSSD is the reason why it's preferred is that it's it's a, a more reliable marker, very easy to calculate. I mean, if you have RR intervals, you could actually uh, calculate RMSSD in Excel. It's it's a statistical measure, root mean square of successive R to R interval differences. That's what it stands for. It's it's consistent in paced or non-paced breathing situations, whereas HF and LF are are going to be a lot more influenced by your breathing rate. So for in the field with athletes who may not be sticking to a certain breathe or respiratory rate or whatever, it's not going to affect your your numbers as much. And lastly, I kind of got to it before, is it can be calculated in a, in a relatively short time frame. In fact, you can get an RMSSD measure in, in 10 seconds. However, that, you know, that generally isn't enough RR intervals to give a real capture, a real window of, of that autonomic activity. So actually part of our research was seeing, you know, what is the shortest time frame we can measure HRV in with RMSSD and you know, what we did was we found 60 seconds to be no different than a criterion measure, which is which has been established as five minutes. So we essentially randomly selected 60 second segments within a five minute ECG and we found no differences. You know, oh. but when we looked at 30 seconds and 10 seconds, there was less agreement with the five minute measure. So our kind of our conclusions were that, you know, 60 seconds is probably enough time to get a, a valid HRV reading with RMSSD. That's great. That's that's very short. Because uh, a lot of the apps you said there's this standard. I, th I think that comes from the research, right? Which is five minutes for for recording. But a lot of the apps now are looking at like three minutes or or something like that. What what kind of variance do you see across the apps? Have you seen any apps that go as low as sixty seconds, so makes it you know a little bit more convenient? Yeah, there's there's some apps that uh, iFleet is an app, for example, that uses a fifty five second test. There's another app called HRV Four Training. That uses it actually allows you to select your test duration. So there's a 60 second option. I believe there's a two minute option, a three minute option, and then I think there uh, there's a device called Tink that I believe it's like a 40 or 45 second test. I use that briefly, and then the other apps tend to use a little bit longer. Now the longer measurement, it's certainly not a bad thing to get a bigger sample of RR intervals for analysis. The, the issue comes down to is the athlete or is the client or are you willing to do that every day? If it's two, three minutes, you know, that, that could be a little bit long, you know, 55 seconds of one minute. That's generally not too bad. It's kind of, it's, I, know, I find it more tolerable. The athletes I've used it with, you know, generally can handle it. So it all comes down to preference, right? Yep. Yep. Totally. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the app. So I'd, I'd like to dive into that because, you know, I know there's quite a few out there and there's, there's a lot of them coming onto the market now. HRVs just started to become pretty popular. Basically, you're going to have a device for tracking your heart rate and you're going to have an app to go with it. 
Uh, which ones have you looked at and what are the kind of trade-offs and, and benefits of each? Have you got preferences and, and so on? So I first started out with the iFleet app. That was that was the one I, I read on the forums that people were talking about. In fact, I think it was the only one available at the time. So when, uh, when was, was this, by the way? Just to... This was 2011, early, okay. I think uh, around summer 2011 is when I actually bought it. So that uh, that specific device at the time required a heart rate strap and a little ECG transmitter receiver device that you would actually plug into the headphone jack of your mobile phone. And uh, again, it was a 55 second test and I've stuck with that device actually. There's a few reasons why I stuck with it, but one being that, that it uses such a short measurement duration. And especially now that you know I've, I've looked at the data, I'm quite confident that that short of a duration is still going to give acceptable measures or you know more valid data. So I've stuck with that, but I have used others. I've I've done some beta testing for some people and looked at some other apps. And I mean, at the end of the day, you just want one that that you're going to be able to use and that provides your data that's easy to interpret. You know, nice visual trends help whatever's more affordable for you. There has been some advancements in technology that allow you to measure HRV with Without an ECG receiver, now you could just use a Bluetooth heart rate strap with some of these devices. There's previously or recently validated with a pulse wave finger sensor that iFleet is using that you could literally, without any kind of heart rate strap, you just plug your finger into this little uh, finger sensor device that's plugged into the headphone jack and you could actually get your heart rate reading from the pulse out of the, your fingertip. Right. And, uh, How accurate uh, do you think that is? Because I because I use one of those for uh, something called HeartMath, which is using HRV but in a different um, area, and uh, that uses your ear, so it's collecting your pulse from your ear. But I find that every time I move in any little way, that mm -hmm. it's it's messing with the signal and it's you know and it, it's not very clear. So do you, do you find the the finger sensor because it's using light, right? It's, it's uh, pulsing light in to see what your heart rate is. Do you find that reliable? Well, we've actually, I think we have about 15 athletes where we we looked at the pulse wave finger sensor and compared it to EKG. They were soccer players, male and female. We did supine and standing positions. Yeah, it was accurate. Great. It was more accurate in the supine position, but acceptable agreement also in the standing position. So we, ha we haven't published that yet. Uh, we want to collect more data on it. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident in it based on the data that I've collected with it. Yeah. That, that Now that's with the pulse wave finger sensor device that's not putting your finger over the camera lens where the, the flash goes that's, that's not what we measured so just to be clear yeah so if someone's getting one of these apps what would be your suggestion uh so all of them are using rmssd I, i'm assuming i know the one i'm using uh sweetwater hrv plus a uh, polar h7 uh strap strap to get the heart rate with the uh bluetooth that you mentioned earlier i got an iphone 5 so that works fine for me, and that was relatively cheap to get up and running with. I know that Sweetwater, for example, they take RMSSD and they modify it a little bit. They put it on this uh, 1 to 100 uh, index. Do the other apps modify this? Because I'm just like, is there a compatibility problems later if you want to switch apps and you can't compare your score? So Sweetwater, I, I, or the Sweetbeat app, I've actually experimented with. Now that, from when I used it, was providing various HRV parameters. It was giving you the HF, the LF, RMSSD, SDNN, you know, numerous parameters of HRV, which is great if you know what those mean and how to interpret them. But I generally tell people to stick with, you know, look at the RMSSD. Now, I know when I, I started using a modified 
modified ARM SSD value, what they essentially did was they, they log transformed ARM SSD and multiplied it by 20. And that gives you, you know, a figure on a 100 point scale. Uh, BioForce uses that value. I wasn't aware that Sweetwater or the Sweetbeat device did or not. I thought it was a raw ARM SSD value, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, yeah. I, actually, I spoke to them one time, so it's definitely a modified scale version. Okay. So then they probably use a, the, that value or something very similar. Now, not all apps use that value. A lot of, you know, for example, the Omega Wave has a smartphone app and they're using their own algorithm to come up with kind of a, a daily readiness score. So they're, they're factoring in HF, LF, the HF, LF ratio, ARM, SSD. So it's not, it's not one parameter that they use. So, you know, there is difference among the apps and, and what they interpret. So it is something you, you probably want to look into. Right. And yeah, you probably don't want to switch around too much once you've settled on one. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you find an app that you like. Uh, what's most important for the for the end user is, I think, the visualization of the data and how they could view it so that they could see, you know, what their trend is like, how it's uh, responding to their training. One of the things I, I really appreciate about the iFleet app is that it allows you to input your training load score. So depending on what kind of training you're doing or how you choose to quantify your training load. You know, you have your RPE values, you can calculate tonnage for, you know, weightlifting or powerlifting. You can do a trim value for, you know, uh, endurance athletes, what have you. So you can input a training load value, and then it also gives you the ability to, to track your psychometrics, your perceived level of stress, uh, sleep quality, muscle soreness, mood, nutrition. So you can, there's a sliding scale for that that you can kind of rate so all of a sudden you have a device that isn't just tracking your HRV, but it's kind of monitoring several variables, which really makes interpretation of your HRV trend, you know, more meaningful. I know BioForce has an online system where you could go on, input your data, just kind of similar to the iFleet one. I'm not sure if you could do that from the app or not at this point, but it's a very similar system. So, I mean, that's another great product to look into. So when, when you are evaluating what app you want to use, you want to look at what additional features it has to offer because an HRV score by itself is, is less meaningful without all this other information. So the more information you have and that you could, you know, maybe attribute your changes and your trend to, the better off you're going to be. Right. Because I, I know for me, like some, this has been a few times where I've had this huge crash and I've been wondering what happened. I didn't have any, you know, big training session or anything yesterday. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely kind of like this, uh, how would you say it's just like little investigation sometimes? Why did my HRV crash? Have you like I know you've got some interesting stories about times that you've seen athletes or your own scores crash. What kind of things have you seen uh, that influence a crash? And have there been any times where you know you you really didn't find any reason for it? I mean, if we're talking a substantial decrease in your score, usually it's it's pretty easy to attribute it to something. Sometimes it's these these smaller deflections where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's it's that low today. That may be harder to attribute to something specifically. But I mean, you wake up with a fever, you're going to have some real low scores. Your heart rate's going to be high, and you're going to have some some low scores. Um, you know, one one of the one of my coolest little anecdotes that I have with with using an HRV app is, you know, when I got I got real sick a, a couple of years ago over March break. And uh, HRV, I was able to to use to guide my training to where I could start pushing it hard again and kind of get back to my normal routine. You know, for, for a week, I, I had terrible symptoms. I had fever. I, I wasn't able to train. My scores were really low. Uh, once my symptoms kind of subsided and I wanted to get back into training, what I was seeing was from very moderate workouts, 
pretty low intensity, something I would consider almost like a deload type of workout. These were causing pretty substantial decreases in my HRV. So I, I could see that my body, it was reacting to the training. It was, you know, but it was quite stressful according to those scores. So I would actually continue to train relatively light until my scores would, you know, wouldn't fluctuate so much. And that's when I would actually start pushing it harder again. And I could see in my trend that it wasn't as stressful. I wasn't seeing as big swings in my scores and kind of able to use it to guide myself out of that situation where typically a meathead like me, I'll just start pushing the weight as hard as I can as soon as I feel ready, which may not have necessarily been the, the best thing to do at that time. Right, right. Totally. I mean, I've been, I've been in a similar situations myself. I don't know if you were like, I, I had a score of 80 uh, just recently and it crashed to about 50. I don't know if that's uh, something you see often. Yeah, that's a big drop. And and were you able to attribute that to anything or? Uh... Yeah, um, like I've been suffering from a chronic illness and uh, it has something to do with that. So it's pretty serious. Uh, you know, it's a pretty serious thing. It's not a typical thing. So what, but in, in terms of someone a bit more normal, um, who's not dealing with kind of like medical issues or anything, what would a typical crash look like? Is it 20 points? Is it? You know, it's everyone's individual and unique. Every individual's data needs to be taken into context of what kind of training they're doing, how advanced they are, how trained they are. A more advanced endurance athlete, for example, will see smaller swings, you know, more than likely. They will recover faster. Take an untrained individual, you put them through an intense workout, whether it's weights or, or conditioning, and they're going to see a big drop. And, you know, that could last 48, maybe 72 hours. So it Every situation is unique and every individual really needs to take some time to, to collect some data and observe how their trend is evolving in response to their training. Because unfortunately, you can't just say that this means that for everyone because it's just not the case. And you really do have to maybe do some calculations with your data in Excel looking at you know the weekly mean value. You look at the variance within that week and, and all that kind of analysis will, will give you a better indication of how you are responding to your training. Right, right. So, of course, like, like a lot of the other things that athletes look into when, when they're training are all sorts of lifestyle factors that could be affecting their recovery and, and how they're performing. I know that you've had many experiences with this. Like in one post, you talked about like travel and another you talked about going home for, was it Christmas or is it Thanksgiving and, and seeing some stuff there? What, what kind of situations have you seen that or, or like another guy went on spring break, I think, and he was partying a bit? What kind of situations have you seen that? Could be said like to be obvious, but what kind of things would you say to look out and like, you know, typical things that you've seen affect it? Yeah, your absolute, your lifestyle absolutely will affect your HRV responses. For example, working with a soccer team, we put them through a hard week of training. We see, you know, pretty typical HRV responses. And then half of them go out on Saturday night partying and uh, maybe having a couple of drinks. I don't know. And uh, the other half maybe stays at home, gets to bed at a reasonable hour. And, and you can definitely kind of predict, you know, who was out that night based on, hmm. you know, those. Now, you definitely would need to do a little bit more investigation. You can't just, you know, look at a score and say, oh, well, you know, this person did this. But it does give you some kind of indication. Maybe you got to look into what's going on. Was it the night before a game? You know, how are your athletes behaving? Not necessarily a tool to spy on anyone or anything, but it, it, it kind of will lead to some questions. You know, why isn't this person recovering? Why are their scores low? Are they getting sick? Are they staying up too late? Are they not getting enough sleep? So yeah, sleep is definitely one factor that will affect your score. Alcohol, if you're out drinking, you're definitely going to see some lower scores the next day. Uh, like I said before, illness, your scores will definitely drop from that. In my experience, anytime I've gotten a cold or especially a fever, the scores drop. Now you were referring to some of my older posts where I talk about 
I actually went home to visit some family that I, I get to see, you know, maybe once or twice a year. I actually had really high scores the next day. Is that the reason why they were high? I, I mean, I don't know. That's it's just speculation. But I mean, anything that you perceive to be very restful, whether that's sauna, you know, you, you get a book, you read outside, you get some sun, yeah. you know, something that you perceive to be restful and relaxation is generally going to, you know, promote some of that parasympathetic activity and, and you know, that restoration that we want to get. So I, I think it, it depends on the individual and their own personality for what they perceive to be regenerating and relaxing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've certainly, well, you know, sometimes I'll take a specific day off and I'll say, okay, I'm going to recover this day because I need to because my HRV is down. And it definitely pushes the you know, score up. I've seen that uh, many times. So like you say, the relaxation could be different for different people, but it, it definitely seems to impact um, the score if you take a day off and forget the work and, and all the other stresses. I don't know if you've seen examples of work stress figure into this. I, I've seen some some studies where they, I mean, that's not, I'm not as interested in that, so I, I don't pay yep. too much uh, attention. But yeah, there's definitely uh, you know a stressful lifestyle, whether that's from work, you know, you can, you can have money problems. These are all things that that can affect you know your your autonomic nervous system, right? So it can be uh, apparent in your HRV score. You know, one thing I found uh, is just you know, within the literature, but also through trial and error is, is some light aerobic work has a stimulatory effect on parasympathetic activity. So some active recovery can, can really help keep those scores up. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was going through a kind of a work capacity phase where I was just trying to get in better shape, uh, bring up my aerobic fitness a little bit. So after my resistance training sessions, I was doing 10 to 15 minutes on the bike. On off days, I was doing 20 minutes on the treadmill. Or, you know, 10 minutes on the treadmill, 10 minutes on the rower, just trying to increase my fitness a little bit. And I actually, I've never seen anything like it in my trend before. I, was, I wasn't seeing any really big swings from day to day, even after like a heavy resistance training session, you know, five sets of five with 80% plus. And, uh, you know, normally that would, that would result in a lower score the next day. It appeared that these, these smaller aerobic sessions really attenuated you know, those swings day to day. So I was seeing very little variance between my scores for that two week period. Uh, but then as soon as I stopped keeping up with that, I went back to my old fashioned, you know, hard workout, you see a lower score and it takes a day or two to come back up. So it's interesting how much of an effect the light aerobic exercise has on stimulating that parasympathetic activity. Hmm. There's probably, a, you know, there's definitely a threshold where too much or too intense, and it's going to have the opposite effect. But you know, a, uh, a reasonably late session for not too long will generally has a stimulatory effect and you'll see a, a bump in your HRV, you know, 24 hours later or so. Okay. So are you saying that, like, is that something that's going to help people or is this just modulating the HRV, but it's not going to impact your actual recovery? So it's, it's just modifying the number, but um, it's kind of hiding the fact that your HRV would have gone down. Well, I think it, again, it comes back down to what your training goals are. So now after a heavy squat session and, uh, you know, I do some cardio, some light aerobic work after, and, and I, I don't see a drop in my HRV, that doesn't mean I'm going to be able to go squat heavy again necessarily. It's just saying that my cardiovascular autonomic, you know, uh, nervous system has rebounded back to baseline level. So that system may be ready to go again. Again, it, it comes down to context. If you're more of an endurance athlete, it would probably be a better marker of, of when you're ready to train again. But with, with resistance training, there's, you know, muscular damage that isn't necessarily reflected 
in your HRV. I mean, there's just not enough data yet to to show that you know an HRV score is is related to any kind of nervous system potential for strength sports or power or anything like that. That's interesting. Interesting because like one of the things you mentioned was that when you're doing something new, some kind of new activity, uh, some some time type of new training, that you see the you know your score uh, like like crash down. In, in particular in those, in those situations. Now, is that, is that, do you think it's because of neuromuscular or metabolic adaptation that has to take place there? Or what do you think that's down to? It's probably a combination of everything. You've introduced a novel stimulus that your body just hasn't necessarily adapted to yet or in a long time. So it's just harder to recover from. I don't have the answer for that. I, I, it hasn't really been, uh, at least I haven't seen anything to explain why it, it that's just how it is. You know, a novel stimulus, whether it's conditioning, resistance training, if you, you do a drastic change in your volume or intensity, from what I've seen, it, it it's going to cause a, a lower score than, than typical. But with persistence and that, that new training modality or those methods, and you'll see that progressive adaptation, you'll see smaller swings after, you know, the body kind of adapts to it, it, it gets yeah. more familiar with it. There's probably a better scientific explanation that I just don't have it for you right now. Great, great, great. So, um, I want to talk about recording, like how you record it, what kind of numbers uh, you want to make sure you get frequency and so on. But just before that, um, how about baseline? Can you increase your baseline over over time? Or are we just looking kind of like at the dips and, and the highs and trying to keep it in the highs uh, more and, you know, kind of slacking off when we have more of the dips? Or are we able to actually influence this and in a way build more resilience over time? Your lifestyle is going to change your your training's going to change, your your training frequency. If you're a competitive athlete, that you know you have different seasons, different times, and then that's all going to affect your HRV because your your training's going to change. You're not going to always be doing the same type of training. You know, you might be doing less aerobic work in a different phase, and, and that aerobic work is really what stimulates those higher HRV scores. So if you're doing less aerobic work, you're going to see lower scores. And so you do have to take, you know, whatever your baseline is, you got to take it into context for that training phase and, and your new training goals. You absolutely have to have an evolving baseline. You know, you, a lot of the apps will use a rolling seven-day average. But generally, at, at the start of a phase, you know, you look at your, your first week, you look at the average, you look at the variance within that week. Uh, a simple value to use is called the coefficient of variation. It's just the standard deviation divided by the mean times 100. And that gives you a, you know, a percent value of the variance and see how it evolves from there. What, but, what do you, so, what, so what do you use the COV for? So the coefficient of variation is, is, so you have a weekly mean value, which is just the average of, of you know, a seven-day period. Yeah. That average doesn't necessarily indicate or reflect how much fluctuation existed between those scores on a day-to-day basis, right? Yeah. So we want some kind of value or figure, similar to a standard deviation, of, of how much variance there was. Because you're, let's just say your, your average one, between two weeks is no different, but you have much more fluctuation in one week than the other. Well, that could be indicative of, you know, some positive adaptation or, you know, I have a case study that we did with a cross-country endurance athlete that's to be published one of the next editions of the Journal of Australian Strength and Conditioning. And we actually found that the, his CV value, the coefficient of variation, was much more related to his endurance performance than his weekly mean value. I mean, we get into, you know, possible explanations why in the paper. Yeah, the variance is important, you know. Yeah. So you want mean- So you want less variance, which means that your, you know, your system's dealing with the different stresses and the changes more easily. I, I don't think it's not a matter of, uh, I think it's maybe when you want that 
I mean, if you're seeing big fluctuations in your scores, that's not a bad thing. That's that's your body adapting and adjusting to the training. But okay. it probably means it probably means that you're not in the the best state to to compete at your best or to perform at your best because your body is you know it is adapting and it's going through the stress and recovery phases. But all of a sudden, you've been doing that training for a while. You see less fluctuation in your scores. There's maybe less. It's not the same amount of stress as your body initially perceived it as and, and had to recover from. You may be in a situation where you're performance you may be at a higher level performance again that's i'm you, going on it, yeah it sounds like you know a cov low variance could be an indication that you've adapted to whatever stimulus is you're you're giving yourself what kind of you know that could be lifestyle or it could be training and in another situation if it is pretty high it could mean that you know something different is going on in your body's adapting to it and it could be you know if it's got high variance it might be a good thing if you are going through new training sessions it's showing that your you know body's going through that adaptation does that make sense does that yeah Absolutely. And and one thing I need to point out is, is you know, I, I started using the CV value after reading a, you know, a case study by Daniel Plews and Martin Boucher, and all those guys that are, you know, the experts in this area. And, and what they found with the CV was in an overtrained high level endurance athlete, I believe it was the CV was related with the progression of overtraining. So, when, when you're looking at any kind of value, whether it's the mean or the CV, you really need to look at the training load. You need to look at their, their perceived levels of, of fatigue and stress to really give more meaning to that value. So again, a high HRV score, or a high, uh, an increasing trend can also be indicative of overtraining and mostly an endurance athlete. So you, you kind of have to look at these other factors. The, the HRV scores alone aren't going to tell you much without all this other information. So the CV, whether it's good or bad or whether we want it or not depends entirely on the context of that training and what's going on with the athlete and, and how far we are from competition. So there's no such thing as, you know, we want this. I mean, maybe in certain phases we want this, but it's all relative to, to the individual and to the training. So right. everything to be factored in. If you, if you take uh, two athletes or perhaps an athlete and a non-athlete and you compare their HRVs, kind of like their seven-day average, right? So getting their baseline. Um, are they going to be different? Is, is the athletes going to be higher? And is that some, like um, going back to your baseline, is that something we want to be higher and we should be trying to get higher over time? Is it possible? I mean, the average person, just for the cardioprotective benefits of, of having a higher parasympathetic uh, activity at rest, definitely, generally higher HRV is a good thing. If you take a team of athletes and you have them monitor their HRV, you're going to get different scores. In a group of so female soccer players that I worked with over this past season, their average scores range, you know, from the low 70s up to a couple girls were, you know, pushing 100. There's a genetic factor here. There's um, lifestyle. There's fitness. Mm. So all these things come into play. But you, you can maybe generalize that, you know, an endurance athlete who's going to have a very low resting heart rate is going to have higher HRV, which could be, you know, in the 90s plus. Um, you know, anaerobic athletes can be between that 70 and high 80s, depending on their fitness level. So you can you you can maybe say that this is where they probably where the average would be for this type of athlete. But right. in my experience, everyone's kind of had their own their own trend and their own response to training. Similar responses in terms of you know the fluctuations and, and following a heavy training day and and whatnot. But you're not going to get a team of soccer players with everyone's score being 90 and similar changes. Everyone's different and uh, you should plan accordingly for that. Right. So someone in their 60s, is, is, that, is that okay? 
or somewhere in the fifties. Well, I mean, that's, that's, I would ask, you know, is that being measured in a supine uh, laying down position or is that a standing value? Does right. that obviously make a difference? Okay. Let's get into that then. Um, cause I know you take both readings, correct? Well, I experimented with both. Yeah. Um, I've been sticking with standing. I've been doing standing since day one. Uh, but I did experiment for a little bit, actually at different time points, I experimented with supine readings as well. But you, you want to get into... Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, supine, supine, just for the guys listening, that's, that just means you're lying down. So you're taking, you know, readings when, when you're still in both situations, right? Correct. Yeah. So we're getting into the recording methodology here. It's like, you know, how, how do we go about actually taking these readings and when, when would you do it to get, you know, reasonable results? I take it, for instance, every morning uh, when, when I wake up, I'll go to the toilet and then I'll take the lying down one and I'll stand up. And I'll take that. I have to. I have to let it rest for a little while when I stand up. So I'll stand up for about a minute, and then I'll take the reading. Uh, so okay. you can tell me if that's that's like correct or not. I seem to get relatively stable readings. So, you know, how do you go about it now, and what kind of things have you discovered that are good and, and bad, and help to get an accurate reading, and what kind of uh, things do you need to avoid? This is interesting. You know, the, the general guidelines are a supine measurement where you record the last five minutes of a of a ten minute segment. So you're essentially have a, what uh, is often called a stabilization period where you let your heart rate to adjust to that position. And so that's generally a five-minute period followed by a five-minute recording. With the research that uh, I've been doing, Auburn with Dr. Michael Esco, is trying to investigate shorter, more convenient HRV recording procedures. Because one, we want to do research with these smartphone apps, but you know we weren't entirely sure if we were going to be able to publish anything without any kind of validated shorter measurement procedures that you know we could say you know what we 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 did a shorter measurement recording we had a, a shorter stabilization period but you know that's not necessarily a problem because it's it's not really showing any differences to these accepted standard measurement procedures so as i kind of mentioned before we found that 60 seconds was a suitable duration for an rmssc measurement we have a new paper that's currently in review where we looked at, you know, how long does the stabilization period need to be, at least in a supine position. So we looked at standard measurement, uh, five minutes following a five-minute stabilization period. And we just looked at if each individual minute, you know, minute one, minute two, three, four, and five, were those values any different to the five to ten minute segment? I'm not going to get too much into the results, but we're we're pretty confident that you, we can get away with a shorter stabilization period, much shorter than what was what is traditionally recommended. And again, we're just we're just looking at capturing a resting measure. We're not using this for clinical diagnosis or or anything like that, right? So healthy populations and athletes, where we just kind of want to get a general indication of of their heart rate variability that day. We don't need a, a whole ten minute procedure. Yeah. So what, what I mean, what statistical variance we're talking about between yours and the the five five minute one? Is there a, is it like the, a five percent difference or? Are we talking about the stabilization or the 60 seconds? Uh, yeah, if you do your shorter version, which is what is it? What is it? One minute and one minute or? So so let's just say that you use a one minute stabilization period and then a, a, a one minute test. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're trying to get me to get into the results, which I, I shouldn't do until it gets published. But uh, OK, well, just, just a rough, rough idea. You said it, it's OK, right? So don't give me a statistic, but yeah. Let me put it this way. It would, it would be trivial. Uh, there's, okay. you know, that, that's a term we use with a statistic called the effect size, yeah. which is, you know, telling us how practically meaningful the difference is. Yeah. Uh, I say that 
the, the shorter stabilization period as opposed to the traditional one, you would probably see trivial differences. I can tell you within the literature, a five-minute HRV recording has been used following only a one-minute stabilization period, and that's been used in elite endurance athletes, and the data was still providing very meaningful information okay. pertaining to training status. So again, a, a shorter stabilization period, uh, you know, one minute, it's been used. So I would say go ahead and use the one-minute stabilization right. period. Right. So, I mean, uh, it's, it sounds like it's, it's reasonable to do a one-minute stabilization and then a one-minute with the app. Depending on the app, they do d different times automatically, of course. But you think that would be okay for, for some guys at home who want to, you know, use this for training and so on? I mean, absolutely. With, with the athletes I've worked with, with myself, and then with the, with the data that we collected and, and looked at, one minute is, is not very different from the five-minute value. So, yeah, I'm quite confident in, in that shorter measurement with RMSSD specifically. Great, great. So what, what other things are, so are you taking, are you still taking the lying down, the supine and the standing and of what we just spoke about, the one minute, one minute, is that fine for both of them? After your a postural change, you're going to want to, uh, what happens is in a supine position, your, your heart rate doesn't really need to work as hard to pump blood to the brain. Then when you stand up, all of a sudden, you know, you, you have receptors that are going to detect changes in blood pressure and, and, and this happens real quickly, but essentially your heart rate is going to shoot up real high immediately following a postural change. And then it actually takes longer than a minute to actually stabilize. But in the research, one minute following that postural change is, is when they'll start recording HRV in the standing position. Going back to why I like the standing measurement is simply because what's happening is you're introducing a, a small stressor to the body that it needs to adapt to. Mm. Okay, that it's called an orthostatic stress. It's, it's just, you know, that standing, you, you stand, you put that, that little challenge on the heart where it has to react to the, the postural change. And then you want, you kind of essentially are evaluating how your heart is responding to that. If your heart rate variability is very low, you know, after you've given your heart rate time to stabilize, that may be a better indication of how your body is going to respond to physical stress that day. You right. know, that's kind of the working theory. And that's nothing new. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what's called the, the Rusco test, where you start by measuring your heart rate laying down, then you measure it following a postural change at different time segments, and you're trying to see, you know, what the, the changes are between those. So it, it's not a new concept. It's, it's certainly nothing uh, that I could take any kind of credit for. Hmm. But I did experiment with, with taking supine and standing measures and just seeing how it related to my previous day training. This kind of little n equals one experiment. I I've always found that the the standing position provided a better reflection of of you know my perceived level of recovery yesterday's training. Now that's not a very scientific method. I you know I didn't take any blood markers or anything like that. But uh, just from visualizing the trend, you know I see you know what the standing position is looks how it should based on how I'm feeling and and what training was like the previous day. So I pretty much stuck with it. Okay. Now I so think. So, so now do you use just the standing or do you use both? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My, my preferred position is, is, is seated or standing. I do standing just because it's practical. You know, you wake up, you go pee, you're already standing. I plug in my, uh, I use the finger sensor now. So I plug in the finger sensor and I do my measurement right there in the bathroom. It's just easy. The seated position, you know, is, is also, you know, would be similar providing that you're obviously going to have to sit up. There's going to be that little orthostatic or that, you know, that seated up more vertical position challenge. So the seated position is probably, I wouldn't think would provide 
significantly different data, you know, in terms of at least the trend. The yeah. number value might be different, but the trend would probably be the same. Okay. Do you see more variance and uh, slightly lower numbers for standing versus supine? Uh, longer? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the supine values are going to be much higher. I have data in, a, in, in the soccer team that I've been working with. I had them do supine and standing measures because that's that's a question I've always been very interested in. You know, what is the better position? Kind of some preliminary analysis on the data. I, I think what we're seeing is that without getting too much into the results, I think supine and standing may be potentially indicating some, some different information where supine may be related a little bit more to fitness and standing may be more related to the acute changes in response to the previous day training. Again, that's very preliminary. We still got a lot of uh, analysis to do, but from that data, that's kind of what I'm seeing from from my yeah from my personal experience. Mm. So what you're saying is like like lying down is kind of like your baseline, and like standing is what's been going on the last last week in terms of what you've been up to and you've been exposed to in terms of stressors. Possibly it's hard to potentially. Draw any conclusion but i mean in the supine position there there's in, in very very fit athletes there's been issues of, of parasympathetic saturation but all of a sudden you sit up or you stand up and you kind of eliminate that issue so i know in a recent paper by stanley peak and boucher where they they it was in uh, sports medicine and they're they're kind of they reviewed the literature on parasympathetic reactivation after exercise and, and you know one of their recommendations was to measure in a seated position I would definitely recommend anyone, especially exceptionally fit athletes, you know, any endurance athletes or some really fit athletes, soccer players, rugby, what have you, with really low resting heart rates. I would definitely do either a seated or a standing position. For less fit individuals uh, with with uh, higher resting heart rates, supine position may be fine. That's kind of your that's a gut instinct that I don't necessarily have a ton of data to support that. So yeah, take with that you know take that how you want. Okay. Okay. One of the one of the a few of the other things is just to make sure that there's no other confounding variables coming in here. Do you have to make sure this is at the same time of day, or is it irrelevant? Yes. Yeah, so actually, I, I meant to get into some of this stuff. You definitely want to be consistent with your measurement procedures. You know, one of the best recommendations is you know you have to remain as motionless as possible. It, it's funny, you know, you you collect ECG data and a bunch of athletes, and you're you're reviewing it, and you you see some funny things, and and you're like, man, what were they doing in there? And uh, one athlete was had a bit of a cold at the time and, and we could see her sneezes in the in the her RR interval trend, you know, the the on the tachygram, we could see when she sneezed, we could see when athletes maybe moved positions or adjusted their position. And you know, this all is gonna affect your heart rate. I looked at an ECG trend when the investigator walks into the the ECG room or the lab and just that kind of startles the the subject or it might not startle them, but it just it does provoke a heart rate response, and all that can affect your your heart rate variability information, right? So you want to be as undisturbed as possible. You want to limit any kind of noises. You want to limit you know anything that can be distracting. You know, you mm -hmm. obviously you don't want to necessarily check your emails or messages first thing before you do it. You know, because that can create some anxiety based on you know work related issues or you know anything really. So you definitely just want to wake up. You know, do your business in the bathroom, empty your bladder, and do your measurement, whether you do it seated or standing, or if you choose to go lay down again, or if you choose to just do your measurement right in bed right after you wake up, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's it, Consistency is the most important. Definitely limiting the noises, like I was saying. 
time of day is actually that that's a that's a research question that we have and that's something we want to answer um there's definitely going to be circadian rhythm effects so if you you know you do a measurement at 7 a.m it's definitely going to be different by noon but is there a difference between a 7 a.m and 9 a.m you know if you're within a reasonable time we've been asked by some some professional nfl teams can can they bring their athletes into the the workout facility have them lay down on a training table and do their hrv then as long as they control for all the other variables my assumption is that you know that's that's not going to be the same information you're getting from a, a waking measure but how different is it and, and can we still get some meaningful data from that that's i don't know that's something we definitely want to look right. into right so i mean like the whole thing about doing this first thing in the morning is it manages to eliminate a lot of you know, potential confounding variables like what's going on in your environment, what you've been doing in the morning, anxiety, and, and all of these other things. Yeah, I mean, apart from sleep, it's going to be your most rested state, right? So yeah. that's uh, the, the ideal time to do it. So, so some of these apps, uh, they auto-correct for things like arrhythmias, uh, errors, artifacts, ectopic mm -hmm. beats, a, a bunch of things which are kind of noise. Would, would some of them, allow, like I know the Polar H7 kind of automatically does that. I, I'm guessing that some of the others do. Does this eliminate these kind of things we're talking about to any extent or not? Yeah, um, I mean, at least because we we did a cross-validation with, with the iFleet device, we looked into how it goes about interpreting the data. And it actually, uh, that device in particular has thresholds for RR intervals where they basically, the average highest range for an RR interval versus the lowest range. And if, if you get a series of RR intervals that kind of exceed that threshold, either above or below it, it's going to correct for it, you know, with the adjacent normal cycle. So a lot of these apps will have built-in irregular beat detection systems. Again, whether it's the R interval is way longer than average or way shorter than average, it'll essentially pretty much uh, red flag that as an irregular beat or, or an artifact or what have you and, and, and correct for right. it. So, and that's, that's a limitation of, of, of a shorter measurement. You know, if you're doing a 55-second test, and you, if you experience a, you know, a couple ectopic beats, generally within a one minute period, you shouldn't be experiencing more than, than one. But, you know, the shorter measurement duration, that's a shorter series of RR intervals. There's more room for error in that situation. But like I said, there is, there is that irregular beat detection function. When we compared, we've looked at, I think we had 25 athletes where we compared to the ECG. I mean, it was accurate. So, you know, and, and that small sample of people, you know, there wasn't any issues. Great, great. So is there anything else in terms of recording that you have to be careful of to make sure that the data is useful, accurate, and so on? I mean, I think the key is that you want to be able to do this every day and, and you want to do it consistently for, for meaningful data analysis. The key is to just to make sure you do it and you're consistent in your environment, very consistent in your position. You don't want to stand one day and do it seated the next day, then supine. You know, if you want to experiment, you got to, you know, when you do a measurement, save it in your preferred position and, you know, just log your other position measurement. You know, you don't want to save that so that it affects your trend line by any means. So so the key is is being consistent in your position. Uh, be consistent with uh, if you if you choose to do the paced breathing, some of these apps provide uh, a lot of them will use seven and a half breaths per minute, which. Uh, you know, was kind of what was the mean breathing frequency of a, a group of endurance athletes. That, that's kind of where that value came from. Just be consistent. Don't do pace breathing one day and then not the other. Shouldn't have too much of an effect with RMSSD, but but you are 
you want to be as reliable as possible with your procedures. So either do spontaneous or paced breathing, pick one or the other, stick to it, stick to the same position. I'm not going to lie. I don't, I don't necessarily measure at the same time every day. I mean, my lifestyle changes. I'll be able to sleep in certain days. I might have to be up super early one day. I do it when I wake up. I mean, that's just the way life is, right? If, if you want to, some people take it pretty seriously and they wake up at the same time every day. That's great. That, that would probably be more reliable, but uh, you got to be reasonable. Yep. Yep. Great. So what I do, for example, is I, I track it every single morning and I'm, I'm looking for either acute drops, like, like big changes to take notice of. Otherwise, I'm kind of looking mostly at the seven day average. How do, how do you approach this? Like, I, ideally, I want my seven day average to go up like over time and so that I can feel like, you know, I'm getting somewhere uh, with things. How do you look at it? Like what's most important? Are you looking mostly at the seven day average? Are you looking at the, you know, the day by day? What are you using most in your actual decisions? Well, I, I like to look at everything. I like to see the acute change, you know, what happened between uh, today and yesterday. I do not generally uh, at this point in time, I do not use a daily change to, to be a huge determining factor in my training, specifically because I'm, a, I'm more of a resistance training athlete. I, I, I'm involved in powerlifting. So an HRV score isn't necessarily indicating, you know, if I'm going to be stronger or anything like that. But I do take a look at it and I see and I always like to compare it to, you know, what happened the previous day. What I like to do is look at the weekly average and the, the, the variation of the previous week. And just to see how that corresponds to my training plan. If I had a higher volume week where I was trying to create some fatigue, I would expect to see a lower average, maybe some more variation and, and go from there. But if you didn't, you might say, okay, I've been under training and I want to push that a bit harder this week. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, you can help, you can use that to guide how you may structure your next training cycle. Again, it really does depend on what kind of athlete you are, but for resistance training purposes, I, I just do a lot of personal experiments. I went through a phase where I was using the acute changes to guide my, my daily training. So rather than taking a, you know, I would work three weeks harder and deload every every fourth week. You know, I stopped doing that for a bit where I would just reduce training loads on a day with a with a low HRV score, should that happen on a training day. Training like that was fine. Uh, I made reasonable progress. I didn't find that not deloading was an issue every every fourth week, you know, by just taking off a day here and there or reducing loads. That was fine. The issue is if you really want to make any kind of marked improvements, you're going to have to do some overload training. And uh, if you're going to overload training, you're going to accumulate some stress and you're probably going to see a decreasing trend in your HRV. And that's that's generally not a huge issue. You just want to be mindful that you're starting to accumulate some fatigue and how long you want to persist with that. You know, you want to pay attention to soft tissue issues. Are you getting uh, a lot of inflammation? You know, I would get uh, some tendonitis in my elbows and, and so forth. So you use it as a guide, but you take it with with other parameters as well, like I was saying before. So, yeah, you know, again, an endurance athlete would be a little bit different. I would actually probably use HRV, the acute changes. I'd probably use that a little bit more to, to influence my daily training yeah. just because it's been shown that, you know, HRV guided training with endurance athletes based on your parasympathetic activity, you may be in a more favorable position for training for, for endurance exercise. So again, it all comes down to what kind of athlete you are, what kind of adaptations you're trying to create. Yeah, yeah, great. So looking at potential alternative metrics, another thing that people use a lot is resting heart rate. Is that something you would you would use as well? Or do you find HRV 
better or is it ever worth like taking both and looking at them in conjunction or, or do you think you know what have you done or do you have no experience with the uh, resting heart rate well i think uh resting heart rate is a little bit more crude of a measure okay uh that has uh, is is now because though it is a little bit more crude it, it, it is it can still be very effective in fact if, if you look at your your rmssd trend against your heart rate trend they'll generally you know be a nice inverse relationship between them where they'll kind of mirror each other now i personally don't monitor both i mean uh if you don't have an HRV device, I would definitely do heart rate. I mean, that's something you could do just measuring your pulse every morning. In my experience, I, I just use the HRV value. What I want to do with, with the data we collected in the soccer team is to see if did heart rate variability provide more meaningful information than basic resting heart rate alone. Do we even need heart rate variability, even though it can be more specific of a measure? Is it necessary? I, I don't think that uh, people need to dismiss heart rate. Uh, and think that it's not useful because it absolutely is. There's been good data on it. And and again, your heart rate variability trend with RMSSD isn't going to be too dissimilar from from your, your resting heart rate trend. They're just kind of inversely mirrored, you know? Yeah. Actually, a couple of things I, I uh, kind of confounders I, I forgot to look at, but uh, I think I think are important. Uh, age and your gender, do they influence? Um, Absolutely. What you'll find with individuals approach middle age or, or they start to get a little bit older there, there's going to be a natural decrease in, in parasympathetic activity. However, that can be changed with training. So if you're doing regular aerobic work, you can mitigate those, those decreases and, and have reasonably high HRV on a regular basis. However, I, I would assume that that would change if you should you stop keeping up with that kind of training. Right. But absolutely. Generally, what you'll see is older older individuals will have lower resting heart rate variability. Females tend to have, if you have two sedentary individuals, the female will generally tend to have higher. You know, that's not always the case. You know, in our data, we looked at uh, 20 endurance athletes, 10 males, 10 females, and uh, their resting heart rate variability was not statistically significantly different. So we measured them, compared them as a group rather than by gender. So if you're endurance trained, you're going to have higher heart rate variability generally, whether you're male or female. But when you remove the training factor, females will generally have a higher resting heart rate variability versus males. But again, that's not always the case. It's, but generally, I'd like to like talk a little bit about like kind of like a where's this where's this all potentially going? Like what what's what we can we in the future are we going to be able to do different things with HRV? Because I do know that it's getting more popular. There's more apps and devices coming out. What is what do you see happening with HRV over the next five years? Do you, do you see any getting more sophisticated? A lot more people using it in different areas. What what, what do you kind of see? Well, I mean, definitely in the clinical setting, with uh, with regards to cardiac rehab, guiding training of individuals who have had cardiac events and so forth. That's not that's not my area. I'm not as interested in the clinical side, but kind of where a lot of this came from and started. So there's definitely, I think there's going to be a, a lot more usage of HRV in, in those situations, um, especially when we have, you know, validated mobile technology where you can acquire a, a resting score in, in a reasonably short period of time. I see it growing there. One one way that uh, I see it being included in, in athlete monitoring is with a reduced requirement, a lower frequency of measuring. So, for example, there's a recent paper that showed that less frequent measures of only three times per week was suitably reflective of the weekly mean value. So 
it didn't necessarily need the the seven day value that it, you could get away with three when you're looking at the average. One thing we're looking at with our data and the and the soccer team is, you know, how few days can we measure HRV where the mean value and the coefficient of variation are no different. So I think when we get more data on that and we start to realize that you don't need to measure HRV every day if you're looking at the means and the CV, it becomes more practical and they're affordable, right? It, it's it was previously cost prohibitive to measure HRV. You needed either an ECG or, you know, an expensive device. You needed a, an experienced and qualified technician to operate the device or the machine and, and then interpret it. Now, you know, within, within two minutes or less, you can get an HRV score. You know, an athlete can take it home and figure it out. It's real easy to do interpretation with the visualization and these other factors. It's becoming a lot more easier to use. And so it's, it's becoming more feasible for people. It's more affordable. So I see it being definitely more widespread in, in, in sports, especially, you know, for any endurance athletes or, or soccer teams that currently aren't using it, which there's definitely plenty. But I think the more evidence that comes, the more, more likely they will be to use it. Even the fact that we can now acquire HRV with a finger sensor makes it a lot more practical for an athlete to wake up and do the measurement. You think about it, one minute test, that's that's not that hard, come on. But you'd be surprised how many athletes just can't seem to do it every day. So reducing the measurement requirements to fewer days per week and, and making it easier to acquire the data, uh, that, that's just going to increase the usage of it, I believe. It will at least increase the research, you know, where we'll have more data to see, okay, is it even worthwhile using in a, a soccer team or a football team or, and what have you. There are other areas where HRV is being used, the, the you know, the biofeedback where you're uh, adjusting your heart rate, trying to increase your HRV prior to, there's been studies we're looking at baseball batting, golfing to see if it affects how accurate they are with their putts and, and so forth. So that's not an area I'm involved in by any means, but you know, that's where it is used. So Right. I, I've seen that. It's, it's, some people have been connecting that to the flow state, you know, which they say is the high performance state. So uh, the idea was that a higher HRV would mean that you're accessing your flow, you're, you're more in a flow state than, than having a lower HRV. Uh, so I, I think that's some of the thinking around that. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've looked at some papers. Uh, my, my interest has always been in, you know, a resting measure and how it relates to performance and fatigue and so forth. That research is progressing, so who knows where that's going to evolve. But yeah. uh, Again, it, it's just a matter of having more data, more published data to show that this is how it can be used. I mean, we're pretty clear that it is pretty effective, but how practical can it be in the applied setting with a, a team of athletes and so forth is, is the next question. So where do you, where is a lot of the research on this? In which journals do you find it? In, uh, are there in some specific journals or is it kind of scattered around? And have you seen it increasing over time? There's definitely been an increase in, in the amount of research on heart rate variability, you know, for, for athlete monitoring purposes and so forth. Um, just to name a few journals, you know, you're looking at International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. There's been some in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. I mean, every month there's there's one or two papers in, you know, a lot of these sports science journals every month that pertain to heart rate variability. Uh, Journal of Sports Sciences, uh, European Journal of Sports Science, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. So yeah, I, you know, I kind of go through these every month and see what what's being recently published. You know, you can get on Twitter and follow a lot of these researchers and interact with them, and and you know, they'll sometimes give a heads up on what's coming, and you know, you could discuss it with them. Attending conferences, you kind of can see what research is upcoming, what's being done, and in fact, that's how I got into all this. Uh, I attended the National Strength and Conditioning Association 
their national conference in 2012. And that's where I met my colleague who I've been working with for the last year or two, uh, Dr. Michael Esco. I met, he was presenting a poster on HRV. He was the only one there doing any HRV research. He was living in Alabama. I was living in Toronto. So we, <laughs> we hooked up. Next thing I knew, I was moving to Alabama and we started doing research together. So that's... Right. Uh, Great. So but, who else? This might be, you might have kind of already asked, uh, answered this. I know you mentioned a few names, but who besides yourself would you recommend to follow to learn more about HRV and these, this biometric? Well, uh, definitely Martin Boucher. Yeah, you could find him on Twitter. Daniel Plews, who uh, worked with Dr. Martin Boucher. Jamie Stanley, uh, another guy who's been producing some great HRV research. Fabio Nakamura. Joel Jameson, who who kind of runs the BioForce system and, and the Eight Weeks Out website. The iFleet has a blog where they, you know, discuss HRV research and maybe they have a, an endurance athlete that posts a training log. I, I try and post some data, some new research here and there. So, yeah, on any of those social media sources like Facebook or Twitter, you could generally find some of these individuals. Great. Thanks. That's a lot of good references there. So, and of course, there's your, your blog, which is hrvtraining.com. Yeah, I try and update it every once in a while. Things get busy, so I'm not I'm not as religious with it as I used to be. But the whole purpose of that was to was to just share data, and and you know there wasn't much talk about it, and I wanted there to be. So uh, that's kind of where it started, and now it's evolved to I'll discuss some of our new research projects and post some new research. Or but it kind of was started with uh, just posting data and and then trying to analyze it and leaving it open for discussion. So if you're interested in looking at some uh, you know previous trends of my HRV or HRVs of athletes where we uh, where we discuss and analyze the data and try and come up with a meaningful explanation or some research review you know you can check out the site uh, I should warn you that a lot of the older posts I I, I kind of reread some of them recently and they make me cringe uh, so <laughs> isn't that always take, way? It with, take it with a grain of salt when you read the older posts um, you know I've learned a lot since I started I've, I mean I've learned a tremendous amount so so yeah, just be aware that some of the older posts may not be a, a current reflection of my uh, my thought process these days. Of course, I coming coming back to kind of a more general general view in terms of you personally. What would be your top recommendation to someone trying to make better decisions about their body's health or performance with data? You you, you need to to select what monitoring variables you're going to, to monitor, and you need to be consistent with them. And, and you need to do a lot of trial and error. You, you need to almost separate yourself from the data, collect the data, you know, analyze it later with, you know, with your training logs and see what it's telling you. If a training variable isn't meaningful, if, if it's not, if you can't figure out why you're measuring it or what it's telling you, then you probably don't need to do it. You want something. So, for example, with me in the resistance training, I'm just, I'm experiment. I'm continually experimenting with HRV. There's just not a lot of data in resistance training and how you may be able to use HRV as a, you know, as a tool to guide your training. So I'm consistently just experimenting with it. But it's pretty clear in the research that perceived levels of training load, RPE values, perceived levels of stress, fatigue, muscle soreness, those things are worth tracking because they do correlate with other markers of fatigue and stress that they're just non-invasive, they're easy to, to monitor and you go with it. So I, I can't tell you not to monitor certain things because it's fun. It's fun to collect data, it's fun to experiment. So, but generally, with, if, you're, if you're just in it to try and improve performance, you wanna pick the variables that are the most meaningful to you, that are the most supported, and you, you need to be consistent with it. Yeah. What, what other data metrics, biometrics do you track for your body on a routine basis besides HRV? Well, uh, I do the, again, perceived levels of 
fatigue, muscle soreness, all of that through the app. Uh, I'll do training load. Every now and then I'll, I'll calculate my tonnage where I'll multiply, you know, the, the weight I've used by the amount of sets and reps uh, and so forth and, and see how that relates to my session rating of perceived exertion. If RPE is better relates to HRV or if the tonnage value does, I don't do that all the time. It is time consuming to, you know, do those calculations. But regularly I do my RPE for my workout. I'll do my uh, perceived levels of fatigue and muscle soreness and so forth. And generally there's a comment section. So I'll, I'll usually make a note or two of something that happened the previous day. You know, if I was out and I had a few drinks with some friends, I'll, I'll make a note, you know, that I had a few drinks. If I'm traveling, uh, when my training structure changed, things like that, I will make note of it. And I do keep a training log where I write down all my workouts and, and so forth. So there's yeah. plenty others that you can do. So. so it sounds like you have a little diary kind of like related to stressors and health in general. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, that's all stored right on the, the smartphone app that I use. Mm -hmm. uh, the training log uh, in my gym bag is just a, you know, a little notebook where I, I log my workouts. I was going through a phase where I was looking at uh, a reaction time test and a tap test. Well, again, on a smart uh, with two different smartphone applications. Yeah. Honestly, I, I was doing it at a time where I, I was less familiar with, you know, certain statistical analyses, and I probably didn't really know how to analyze the data very well. But it's definitely something I've been interested in. There's some data to support that psychomotor speed assessed through a reaction time test can be related to fatigue and overtraining. So there's a smartphone app, I believe it's free, that the screen will prompt you to react to a light changing on the app. So as soon as the, the light turns green, you tap it. And then there's an unknown time interval where it'll then prompt yep. you to tap it again over a series of five taps. Then it'll give you kind of the mean value of, of your reaction time. And I think the data is pretty, pretty cool that, that I've read and supports it. However, I, I haven't really seen any kind of longitudinal data where it's been done every day with athletes. So that's that's actually something I would actually like to include in a in a future study with along with HRV and some other measures. You know, this reaction time thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Yeah, I mean, there are a few of those apps, and I know that some of them are free because I downloaded and played around with them myself. But uh, like you, I haven't really got into it. Um, I played around with it once or twice. Uh, so yeah, thanks for all this stuff, Andrew. Man, this is a uh, very detailed. You know, we've really done the topic of HRV uh, justice. I think really tackling it from every area. So thank you very much for your detailed explanations on everything. Oh, it's uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for for being interested and wanting to talk to me about it. The quantified body.